Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today we're going to be rebroadcasting a Lunch and Learn that Rabbi Wilds recently gave on Facebook Live. We're continuing our pre-Passover coverage. Today we take a look at Moses and the story of the Jewish people's exodus from Egypt. Plus, we start to go through the Seder and offer insights into each section. So, without any further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. So, I want to speak, I just want to give like a more of a general, um, a general idea that I think we can learn from this whole period of time uh, that we're in right now and some idea that I would like to share with you. Give me one second. And then I want to get back into some great ideas for your Seder, for your Passover, that you can use um, to be inspired and um, to enlighten some other people at your Seder. Hang on one second. Sorry, I'm a little ill-prepared this morning. This happens sometimes. Okay, so this is actually a great... Uh, story and great message. Uh, Eitan Sosnowich, welcome back, my friend. And there's an amazing, amazing story of one of the MJE teachers whose name is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Uh, Not to be confused with the chief rabbi of England, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, but MJE uh, has a great rabbi whose name is Jonathan Sachs uh, who continues to teach for us. He's a very dear, close friend of Rabbi Pinney. He taught in our fellowship program. And he was um, previously a Hillel rabbi at Stony Brook, Stony Brook, the university. And he befriended one of the professors there who asked if Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, not the chief rabbi of England, but this Jonathan Sachs, if he would provide bar mitzvah lessons for his son. And the rabbi, of course, was very excited, but he realized that he had a problem on his hands when he learned that the professor's wife was uh, not Jewish, which which meant technically the little bar mitzvah boy in question was also not Jewish. Welcome Daniel Wallach. Welcome Devra Seidel. I hope it's loud enough. I'm speaking loudly. And the rabbi wanted to help, but he had this situation on his hands. So he convened a meeting with Max. Max was the young boy, a 12-year-old boy, uh, whose father was a professor at Stony Brook, and Rabbi Sachs was the Hillel director at Stony Brook. And he turned to Max's parents And he told him that the only way that he could really be involved in preparing Max for his bar mitzvah was if Max uh, was formally converted to Judaism and was committed then to becoming a Jew and going to a Jewish school. You know, he was at the end of elementary school. He'd have to, uh, you know, apply to Jewish day schools. And Max was sitting in the room when this conversation was going on. Without any hesitation, Max leaped from his chair and he said, I will do it. I'll do whatever it takes. He was so excited and interested in being Jewish. And not only did Max convert, and not only did he spend the next four years of his life in the Torah Academy of Suffolk County, where our dear friend Rabbi Penny Rosenthal was the principal, that was his life before MGE, but he then began to express an interest in going off to Israel and spending a year, a gap year, of Torah study in the Holy Land. And another meeting was set up to discuss the situation. Rabbi Pinney from our staff, who was then the American representative from the Israeli yeshiva that Max was applying to. And Pinney showed a brief video. All these yeshivas have their fancy videos to promote their yeshivot. And it's an amazing program. And Max was sitting there, again, visibly interested, really gung-ho about being Jewish. And he told Rabbi Pinney he wanted to go, and then his mother just exploded. In the presence of everyone in the room, she turned to her husband and she said, I know we should never have let him convert and go to that Jewish school. Ooh, tension. Now, Max insisted on going on to yeshiva in Israel, but he promised he would only go for one year. He didn't want to upset his mother. And he promised that he would return to attend Northwest University, it's a good school, where he was actually got a full scholarship. And he did. And this is many, many years ago. Max is now married with children, leading a fully observant life. 
and a clerking actually for one of the top federal judges. But at that tender age of 12, welcome cousin Rhonda from Israel. At that tender age of 12, Max was forced to decide whether he would become a Jew. And then again at the age of 18, he was forced again to decide whether he would continue his spiritual growth into his adult life. By the way, for the first time since I've been teaching this class, I have a live student. I know you're all live on Facebook, but my student Yehuda, my son Yehuda, is actually sitting here listening to this class, and I just want to welcome Yehuda to the room, and I want to thank Yehuda for singing with Yosef and myself and with Ezra every Friday night, little ad for Friday, for Friday Night Lights, going to be 6.15 is coming Friday night. If you hear great harmonies going on, it's not just me singing. He doesn't want to get into the frame, but uh, he sings. He's got an awesome voice. So thank you, Yehuda, and I hope you like the class. So at the tender age of 12, Max is forced to decide whether he's going to be Jewish, and then again at age of 18, whether he would continue his Jewish studies. And I share this story because there's a fascinating incident in Moshe's life. Right Before Moshe takes the Jewish people out of Egypt, and this is something you can share at your Seder, because it really revolves around the central figure in the Passover story, Moses, Moshe. And we know that Moshe, and perhaps the most fascinating aspect to Moshe, was his early life, his upbringing. Moshe, as an infant, he's born to a Jewish family, of course, Yocheved and Amram are his parents. Welcome Joshua Schwartz. And um, Jonathan Schwartz, sorry. Great, great to have you, Jonathan. And perhaps the most fascinating aspect of his life was what happened when he was really little. His parents put him in a little basket and let him float down the Nile. Now, why are they doing this? Who can tell me, think to yourselves, why would a nice Jewish parents like Moshe, like Amram and Yocheved, Moshe's parents, put their newborn infant in a basket and float him down the Nile? Because what was happening in ancient Egypt at the time, they were searching. They were searching to, uh, to destroy, to kill all um, uh, male-born children. It says in the Torah, Kol haben tashlichuhu. Any uh, son that was born to a Jewish family, they would throw them in the Nile. They were literally killing Jews, uh, trying to prevent the next Jewish leader from emerging and trying to keep the Jews oppressed and victimized as slaves. So Moshe is placed in the Nile, and he's discovered by none other than the daughter of Pharaoh. The daughter of Pharaoh has compassion, sees this baby, and names him Moshe. Interestingly, Moshe keeps that name his whole life. Min hamayim mishitihu, because from the waters he was drawn. And this Jewish child, Moshe, then is brought back to the palace to Pharaoh's palace, and he's raised as a prince in the house of Pharaoh. little commercial here, by the way, if you want to get ready for Passover, try to find the prince of Egypt. Uh, Jill and I thought we would get our kids together. They're a little old for this, but you want to know, you're never too old for the prince of Egypt. It's a lot better than the Ten Commandments, if any of you have seen the Charlton Heston film, which is really, really bad. But the prince of Egypt, which is this cartoon, it's so beautifully done. A couple of discrepancies between the biblical account and, uh, you know, the movie, but it's really, really beautiful. My favorite scene is the splitting of the Red Sea. Great, great music. Anyway, so this Jewish child, Moshe, is raised in the palace as a prince, and according to our tradition, Moshe is eventually appointed by Pharaoh as the head of his own household. Now, at the same time, we see that Moshe is still connected with his Jewish brethren. The Torah tells us, Vayigdal Moshe, that Moses was, grew up, and he went out to his brothers. And he sees his brothers, these Jewish slaves working in the fields. But it says, he went out to his brothers, which demonstrates that he sees them as his brothers. And he feels their pain. The Torah says. He sees their affliction. And Rashi comments on that. He, he, he empathizes with them. He places his eyes and his hearts to be in pain with them. So on one hand, Moshe is this prince of Egypt, raised in the house of Pharaoh, raised as an Egyptian, free man. On the other hand, he's very much aware of his Jewish roots and his connection to this enslaved people, and he feels their pain. And he's living in these two worlds. 
And you know, the truth is we all live in at least two worlds. But sometimes there comes a moment in our lives when we are forced to choose, when we have to figure out who we are. And in a sense, Moshe, like many conflicts, the time comes when Moshe is forced to decide who he really is. Is he an Egyptian? Is he a Jew? Can anyone think, if you want to put it in the notes, when is Moshe forced to decide? What happens to Moshe that pushes him to decide whether he is a Jew or an Egyptian first? Anybody know? Yes. He sees an Egyptian beating a fellow Jew. Vayar ish mitzvim make ishivri me'echav. Moshe sees an Egyptian taskmaster striking a Jewish man. Our sages teach us that Moshe sees the Egyptian striking the Jew in such a manner that it would eventually kill him, and now he is forced to decide. Very good, Rachel, when he killed the Egyptian. Excellent. I will believe that you posted that before I started going on. Good, Benjamin Cohen, thank you. Seeing a fellow Jew being beaten. Very, very good. There's a little lag here. We can assume there's a little lag that you didn't just put it on after I said it. Can I trust you guys? I'm going to trust you. Tanya, welcome for, uh, welcome, you joined, welcome. Okay, so the question is, what does he do? He's got a choice. He can let this Egyptian continue to beat the Jew, and if he does, he will be witness to a homicide, standing by idly, it's a prohibition in the Torah. You're not supposed to stand by idly as uh, your brother's blood is being spilled. If he does something, however, he can completely risk his status as a privileged Jew in the palace. Does he remain passive? Does he maintain his privileged member of the royal family? Does he risk losing it all to save a fellow Jew? And the Torah says, Moshe looks one way and looks the other way. It's my favorite English translation. It says hither and whither. That's why English translations sometimes are for the birds. But it says, and he looked one way and he looked the other way. And he sees that there's no one there. And Moshe smites the Egyptian. He kills the Egyptian who's beating the Jew. And he buries him in the sand. And that's it. This is very, very powerful. Because on the surface, the Torah is telling us, He's looking one way, he's looking the other, wants to make sure that the coast is clear. That's the pshat. That's a simple interpretation. But I heard this from my dear friend, Rabbi Ari Berman, whose class I missed last night. He's the president of Yeshiva University. I have two boys in YU and one in MTA. Yehuda was sitting right here. And uh, they told me he was speaking last night and I missed it. Anyway, Rabbi Berman suggested that the reason the Torah tells us he looked one way and he looked another way, and he saw that there was no one there, is that it's not just that he was looking out, but he was looking within. He looked one way, and he saw the Egyptian in him. He looked another way, and he saw the Jew in him. And he saw that there was nobody. He saw, because he was living in these two worlds, that he was completely on the fence, that he was a nobody. Because when you live too much in too many different worlds, it prevents you from acting. It prevents you from truly identifying with your real essence. And he saw the situation demanded a choice between life living as a privileged Egyptian or his identity as a Jew. His entire identity was in conflict. He could no longer avoid deciding. And Vayach Etamitzri. He finally kills the Egyptian. He doesn't simply kill the Egyptian taskmaster, beating the Jew. He kills the Egyptian within him, and he identifies himself as a Jew. And if you see at that very moment, the next pasuk, the next verses in the Torah, is when we see Moshe becoming Moshe Rabbeinu. He goes from just being Moses to Moses, our teacher and our leader. From that point on, Moshe goes on to do great things. We see him breaking up a fight between two Jews. We see him protecting Yitro's daughters from the shepherds. He goes on to confront Pharaoh, demanding and ultimately securing the release of his enslaved brethren. Moshe becomes Moshe Rabbeinu when he gets off the fence, when he kills the part of him that's holding him back, and when he decides to identify as a Jew. But it's only after he first understands who he is. And that's why conflict situations 
are good. We don't like conflict situations. We want to avoid them. We want to just continue to glide and to continue to live in whatever how many worlds we can. But sometimes to be who we ultimately are meant to be, to really become the best version of ourselves, we have to slay the part of us that's keeping us from holding back. You know, when I started with that story about Max, it's, uh, the son of the professor from Stony Brook, because Max had that kind of conflict situation in his life. You know, he had to choose between just being like any other American kid growing up in Long Island, or whether he was going to really identify with the Jewish part of who he was. And we all have that situation in our lives. It could be at work, well, maybe not now. You're working from home. I can't imagine you have as many conflict situations at home, whether, you know, but there are still conflict situations, even if you're working remotely. You have, we all have ethical issues that come up when making a deal, when um, there's an opportunity to make a couple of extra bucks at the expense of some moral, of some ethic we know that is important to our Jewish value system. Um, we have the opportunity to badmouth other people, to get a little head in our work, or maybe a head in our popularity with our friends. And we have that situation where there's a conflict between what I wanna do, what I feel like doing, and what I know up here or in here is right. Those are conflict situations that force us to choose who we are. We have them every day of our lives because we have a Yetzirah Tov and a Yetzirah Hara. We are comprised of both the good and the negative. We have good positive energies and forces within us that's connected to our very soul and to God himself. And then we have what the Kabbalists teach of the Sitra Achra, the other side. It's the dark side. That's why many of you who know me love superheroes, but specifically Batman been watching, not as often as my son Yehuda, who's sitting here, Gotham, but <laughs> he is smiling. Gotham's a great show, and Batman is the ultimate superhero because he's not this like picture-perfect Superman where everything is always okay and you never see him losing his temper and everything is fine. Picture-perfect kind of individual. I've spoken about this before. Now, Batman had all that incident when he was a kid with the bats and he's got a dark side and and, and, and he's a playboy, and he's got a lot of money, and, and all these things could work positively for him, but they could also keep him in a conflict situation between what he knows is the right thing to do and what he wants to do. And he's not just battling the bad guys out in Gotham. He's battling the demons within his own self, which is something we all have to do. And that's a really powerful lesson of Passover that you can speak about about Moshe, Rabbeinu, who's at the center of the story. Moshe was not this picture-perfect individual who was just raised perfectly to redeem the Jewish people. No, he was raised as an Egyptian. How ironic that our Jewish savior was originally an Egyptian. And he had to, he had to get over that. He had to push through that conflict in order to become the great Moses we know him to be. Someone is posting here, Jonathan Brody, Batman was created by a Jew, Bob Kane. Well done. Many comic writers were Jewish. Batman was mortal. He had his intellect and he chose excellence. Uh, he chose good over bad. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't other comic book figures, Jonathan Brody, uh, who didn't have to choose also, but Batman more than the others. Stan Lee? Who's Stan Lee? You can speak up. Oh, who created Marvel, was Jewish also. Oh, he just passed away. Last year, I didn't know that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you, um, Yehuda, appreciate that. So that's one message I wanted to leave you with, and that's like a more of a general message that you can share with your families, you can share with each other, and use it for your own edification. I wanna jump back into now some more specific things for the Seder itself. Um, if you open up your handout that, um, uh, oh, Daniel Walla keeps telling me about the comic book rabbi, okay. I'll keep pushing for it. So, you know what, maybe introduce me, Daniel, and let's see, maybe we can do something on Zoom. There is a comic book rabbi. He's made his whole, whole rabbinic career out of comic books. So speak up, Yehuda. And the kid from, uh, from Gotham who plays Batman. The kid, oh, by the way, this is important. That was a Jewish day school. Goes the kid who's playing Batman as a kid on Gotham now mm -hmm. is not only Jewish, 
but he's, religious. he's a religious kid who goes to a Jewish day school. Where does Shal he live? Hebe. He goes to Shalhevet in California. All the actors are in and, California. And, and Penguin, the guy who plays Penguin. And the guy who plays Penguin is also Jewish. Okay, but you didn't know that, Daniel Wallach, comic book rabbi. Oh, I just pushed off my... Okay, good. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay. Now, we're going to get back into the Seder. I posted a... Uh, Binyamin, rather, posted on the, the, the comments over here. And as you can see, I'm reading the comments. Uh, so please share whatever you would like to share. A beautiful and handout um, with, for what's called elevating your Seder. Um, now, there are 15 steps. The word Seder means structure. And um, there are actually 15 steps leading up and getting us through the structure of the Seder. I may have mentioned this before, and if I did, I apologize. I'm teaching a lot, and some of the stuff is a blur, but Chazara repetition is good. So the 15 steps that led up to the temple where the Levites would sing each day. 15 chapters of Psalms that begin with the words, Shir la ma'alot, a song of ascent. Every month there are 15 days until the moon grows into a full moon. And we know that we follow a lunar calendar. 15 stanzas in our favorite Jewish song that you sing at the Seder. Dai, dai, yeno, dai, dai, yeno. Dai, yeno means enough. And usually people are singing it because they've had enough by then. And there are 15 stanzas which describe the steps taken from leading Egypt until our ancestors built a life in the land of Israel. And the common denominator of all these 15 things they're, they're guided steps, as Rav Cook, the first chief rabbi of Israel, great Kabbalist. Fifteen guided steps that are built one upon another like a rung and a ladder. Like fifteen rungs and a ladder, enabling us to move up from one spiritual state to the next until we get to the last step, which is called nirza, which is the word is in the passive form and suggests that we've attained a feeling of freedom and a feeling of holiness. So the Seder is really, the word Seder, by the way, means structure and order, something we're not feeling a lot of in these corona days. Our day, we just wake up and stay in our sweats all day and lie around. You need to create Seder. You need to create order if you want to accomplish anything in life. And if you want to get to that feeling of like you were enslaved and you were emancipated, which is the point of the Seder night, you need to take these steps and order and structure your moment, your Seder night, rather. So the Chazal, our sages, gave us these 15 steps to structure and order to help us internalize some of the major lessons of the Exodus story. Um, now, we've spoken about some of the other wonderful themes. We talked about Hashkacha, a divine supervision represented by the Matzah versus the Chametz. Uh, we focused on ethical sensitivity and social justice. Uh, and you can read this beautiful article that I have on the front page of the handout. It's written by Rabbi Soloveitchik, and I think we discussed it, and I don't want to repeat, but the idea of sensitivity, that the Jew was always in the forefront of every human rights movement. Why? Because we started out as slaves. We began as an enslaved people, and therefore we are extra especially sensitive. Why are there so many bleeding heart liberals as Jews? And I say that in a positive sense, because we began as slaves. It's in our it's embedded within the Jewish consciousness. It's within the Jewish DNA, if you will, to feel sympathy and empathy for others, the plight of the oppressed. Turn the page now to the first four steps. Um, and that is the Kiddush. We make Kiddush and we use, uh, we actually have four cups. Anybody know why we drink a lot of wine at the Seder? One of the reasons we drink a lot of wine at the Seder also is to help us alter our state. Now, it's a tricky thing because if you drink too much wine, you get what's called drunk or you just fall asleep. That really alters your state and you can't have much of a Seder. But you want to get a little, you want to get a little high, if you will, because it helps you um, a tiny tad. It helps you, um, I, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I, I don't want to get to the point because the word high connotes certain um, ideas and maybe you're getting too out of yourself. You need to remain conscious and you need to remain sober. Okay, I want to be clear about that so you can concentrate on the words and you can really focus. But the wine helps lift our spirits. The wine helps lift our spirits and enables us to imagine ourselves living a little of a different life, which is one of the points of the Seder to get us to feel like we were slaves 
and then have been emancipated, which is why when we drink the wine, we lean, because the ancient kings used to lean. Orchatz is the next step, and that is to get the children really to ask. Tomorrow, maybe I will have um, a Haggadah that we can post, maybe an online Haggadah. If Binyamin, you're listening to this, maybe we can do a little research today to get an online Haggadah. I'm going to need that for my class tonight also with the fellows. Anybody interested in more Torah on, and being Zoomed in uh, for the next level class that I teach tonight at 8 o'clock, um, we are sending out the Zoom today in the email, so you should have that in the Zoom. Um, okay, so Orchatz is basically we go and wash our hands for vegetables because we take a little parsley or you can use a potato and we dip it into the salt water. Now, what's the idea of the dipping? Oh, excuse me. Orchatz is simply to break. Okay, I skipped here. I apologize. Before we dip the vegetable in the salt water, we have what's called um, the orchats. Um, yeah, which is just the washing of the hands before the vegetable gets dipped, which is strange because we normally only wash our hands when? When we break bread. But for the Seder, we're going to be um, washing our hands twice, once before eating a vegetable that we dip in salt water and once before breaking the matzah. Now, you can have just one person at your Seder table do this on behalf of everyone, or if you want to make a whole production, everybody can go and wash their hands. There's no blessing said after this hand washing, like normally for bread or for the matzah. There's just a washing of the hands. And there's a lot of different reasons brought down for this. We're going to keep it really simple. They used to actually wash for dipped vegetables in temple times. So one of the reasons we might be doing it is to remember the way our ancestors lived in the temple times. But it's also simply to get the children to ask, or not just the children, to, get, to keep people in the game. And by the way, anytime you don't know why you're doing something, there's some ritual that you're supposed to do at the Seder, and you don't know, you could probably always answer by saying, it's to get the kids to ask, or it's to get other people at the Seder involved. Because it's just sort of like a, it's kind of like a, a vision or a multimedia device to get people to question and to ask and to be engaged in the night of the Seder. Really important that your Seder, no matter how few people you have at the Seder, and I know that our Sadarm are going to be much smaller than in general, but the idea is to whoever's there to be engaged. And even if you're there alone, I know this sounds ridiculous and kind of sad, we still ask ourselves the four questions. We sing the Manishtana to ourselves. And I mentioned before that you can call someone else that you want to have your Seder with, call them before the holiday starts. This is the simple way of doing it. Just put the phone out and you can do the Seder with someone else while the phone is on for the entire time. Or we're going to have, I just I spoke with my, my dear friend, Rabbi Yona Bookstein in Los Angeles, and we might be uh, doing a Seder with him uh, because he's three hours early. We'll get you more information about that as we uh, tighten that up. We might even have an opportunity for the second night Seder also for someone from Israel, possibly. That's a little more complicated because we don't know how, how long Zoom can actually last. Okay, so um, so that's the Orchatz. Um, and, and that is why we wash for the vegetable and then um, we come back and we take the vegetable. Now it's usually something green like parsley and we dip it. Green usually because Passover springtime, it's a new season. It's supposed to make us feel a little more up. It's redemption. It's when our ancestors were redeemed. And please God, we should all be redeemed from this crazy Corona time right now. And that's something we should continue to pray for as we began our class today. So the connection of the dipping, I wanna mention something else about the dipping. What else gets conjured up by dipping? We do a lot of dipping the night of Passover. I'm going to mention this later in our discussion with the fellows later. But Joseph, there was some dipping going on in the Bible with Joseph. Because what did Joseph, what happened? His brothers threw him in a pit, took his coat of many colors. They dipped it in blood to convince their father that he had been torn alive by animals, that he was killed by animals and not 
thrown into a pit by their brothers and he was eventually sold into slavery. Now, why do we want to recall that at the Seder? Bad family memory. Why do we want to recall that at the Seder? Because if you think about it, how did our ancestors get down to Egypt in the first place? How? Right, Jonathan Brody, they dipped his coat in blood. They, uh, this is just a little too convenient that after I say it, I see it posted. I'm not buying it. I'm just kidding. So um, if you think about how historically the Jewish people came down to Egypt and were ultimately enslaved is because baseless hatred between one Jew and the next. Because the brothers got so upset with their brother Joseph because he was telling over his dreams and he was lording over them. All these, whatever happened, they threw him into a pit. He was sold into slavery. He ended up being sold into slavery and then he became the second in command to Pharaoh. And then the Jewish people eventually were enslaved. And we went from a very high position in ancient slavery to a very low position very quickly. Yosef, the Torah says, a new king arose who didn't know Joseph. But how did we get there? Why was Joseph there to begin with? Because of sin aschina, because of baseless hatred, one Jew to the next. The whole reason that we got into Egyptian slavery eventually is because we didn't treat each other the way we needed to. And that's another important lesson. There's something else to speak about at your Seder. Okay, so we dip the karpas into salt water. Uh, some families use potatoes. I imagine potatoes were used in Europe for centuries because they didn't have anything at that time in the year maybe that was green. So they just, you know, and a potato is, is a vegetable, so that's okay. When you make the blessing over the karpas, over the uh, green vegetable, keep in mind the morrow that comes later. What blessing do we make over vegetables? I'll say it so we all know it. Baruch atah Adunai Eloheinu melech haolam borei pri ha'adamahu. Right? Blessed are you, God, King of the universe, who has given us the, the, the pri, the fruit from the ground, which is a vegetable. Um, and uh, the word, by the way, karpas, one rabbi points out, also comes from the word pasim, from the word ketonet pasim, coat of many colors, which brings up the whole jealousy of the brothers towards Yosef. Um, you'll see, by the way, and I'll talk about this another time, it's a whole other lecture, that there are a number of other references to Joseph at the Seder table. Why do we want to reference Joseph at the Seder table? We'll come back to that another time. And then we break the bread. We then take the, there's three matzahs at your Seder. Why three? A lot of different reasons for why three. Uh, I mean, the technical reason is because for any Jewish meal um, of sudas mitzvah, like on Shabbat, like, a, like a, a mitzvah meal, you need two loaves of bread. You need two pieces, so that's two. And then the third is for the special mitzvah of eating matzah on the night of the Seder. Or, because of three types of Jews, Kohen, Levi, and Yisrael. And we take the middle of the three matzahs and um, we break it in half. Why do we break it in half? The symbolism that a poor man never has a full piece of bread. And we know that matzah is referred to as lechem oni, as poor man's bread, if you will. A very, very important idea. Uh, also, the other idea that, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of different concepts behind that. Um, what do we do with this broken bread? We leave the bigger part on the side for afikomen. So it's a good idea if you have a little afikomen bag or just a napkin or something to wrap it in so you, you don't inadvertently, inadvertently eat that matzah. And afikomen is a Greek word which means dessert. We'll get to that. We're not there yet. That's at the end of the Seder. We do a little fun game hiding the afikomen. But the bigger part of that of, uh, piece of matzah is left for later on, and then we keep the smaller part there. Um, now, the next part of the Haggadah is called the Halachmanya. Now, I have a Haggadah right here. Hang on one second. And if you happen to have this Haggadah, it's a very popular Haggadah that we use at MG for many years. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't um, post a... Um, Haggadah on, online yet. We'll do this for tomorrow and for the rest of the week. But, um, but you don't really need this so much. Uh, I'll read this to you. It's one of the f most famous um, 
parts of the Haggadah. And, and, and it's written in Aramaic, actually. I'm just going to read it in English. This is the bread of affliction. So you take the broken matzah from the middle piece that we just broke off. And then whoever's running the Seder, or you can have everybody doing it together, but whoever, one person then just lifts up that middle matzah. And then everybody says the following declaration. And you have it in your Haggadah, you'll see it. It's at the very beginning of the Seder. This is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Whoever is hungry, let him come and eat. Whoever is needy, let him come and celebrate Passover. Now we are here. Next year, may we be in the land of Israel. Now we are slaves. Next year, we shall, may we be free men. And the real question that's asked, because um, it's just kind of like a weird declaration. You pick up the piece of matzah and you say, this is the, this is the stuff that our ancestors used to eat. And by the way, the ancient pharaohs used to feed, we believe, the slaves matzah because it takes a long time to digest. And that's a really important thing for a master to keep his slave working and working and working and not sitting around pondering anything like freedom for too long. So this is the bread of affliction. Whoever's hungry, let him come and eat. Whoever's needy, let him come and celebrate with us. What is that? Oh, look at this. Somebody just posted. Rachel, link to Haggadah on MGE's website. Look at that. Rachel, you're unbelievable. That was quick. What, a, what an amazing supportive staff. Thank you, Rachel, Ben Lisa, for your amazing help and support. Um, right, and that's a good question that Daniel Wallach is asking now. How can we live up to this declaration during Corona? All right, Daniel Wallach, before we even get to Corona, let's ask how we live up to that declaration all year. How do we normally live up to that declaration all year? By inviting people to the Seder. MGE all year, we invite people to homes on Shabbat. That's something that Jill and Shuki have been working on all year. And it's something that we frankly miss doing. Having people at this Shabbat, this table where I'm sitting right now, and, 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 and setting up MGEers, I mean, at so many homes of our hosts. We're not, we're not doing it. Now, this question actually prevails all year long, Daniel, because you're already sitting at your Seder and you lift up the piece of matzah and you go, anybody want to come in? Anyone want to join us? It seems like a very insincere invitation. And Rosalvechik explains that it's not an insincere, it's not a real invitation. It's not a real thing. Like, anybody who doesn't have a Seder, you can join us now. You know, that's a little too late. Okay, at MJ, we set up people last second all the time. The day before Passover, we're setting people up. The day of Passover, we're still setting people up. But after it starts already, you're going to get up at your Seder and yell out the window? Anybody who wants to join us, come in? Come on, who's doing that? And who's real if someone else shows up? Three homeless guys come in and like, oh, that sounds good. I mean, that... What are you going to do with that? So Rav Salvechik says it's not really uh, a sincere invitation. It's really trying to get people to see. It's trying to get us to see that we believe in using our freedom for something greater. It's more symbolic of how the Jew celebrates freedom. You know, in the United States, we celebrate freedom. And, and we should feel privileged to live in a country that truly believes in freedom. But it's really the freedom to do as you please. Whereas in Judaism, we have specific things that we want you to do with your freedom. 613 things, actually, in specifics. 248 things to do, and 365 things to stay away from. The 613 mitzvot. And the Lachmanya is teaching us that one of the things you're supposed to do with your freedom is extend an invitation to other people. Very, very famous story. Rabbi Chaim Salavechik, Rabbi Joseph B. Salavechik's grandfather, who was once approached by one of his students. I tell the story every year, and if you hear it again and again, it's okay, I love it. And somebody came to him and wanted to know, is it okay to use milk instead of wine for the, to fulfill the mitzvah of the four cups of wine? And Rabbi Salavechik answered, I'm sorry, it's not, but if you come into my study, I have some communal funds that I can share with you so you can afford the wine for your Seder. And his wife noticed that he gave him a lot more wine than, a lot more money than, than was needed simply for wine. 
And he asked, and she asked her husband after his student left, why did you give him so much money from the communal funds? And she said, and he said, listen, somebody asks whether um, you can use milk instead of wine for the Seder. It probably means they don't just have enough, they don't have enough money for wine, but it probably means they don't have enough money for other things. This is a very religious person. And that probably means they don't have enough money to have chicken or to have fish or to have whatever it is they're eating at the Seder. So I wanted to make sure that he and his family had what they needed for the holiday. I'm encouraging everyone to give what's called maus chitim. Maut is money, chitim are funds. And if you go on the Jewish Center website, you can make a donation for maus chitim or you can on the sale of chametz form, it has the information to make a donation specifically to help people afford matzah and to help people keep the holiday, which is a very, very important type of tzedakah and type of charity to give um, before Passover. You can do that all this week. Take a look at the handout that you have where it says the Hebrew word for freedom. Really beautiful idea here from Rav Cook, the first chief rabbi of Israel. He says, the difference between a free man and a slave is not simply a matter of the order to which each belongs, in that one happens to be in bondage to another while the other one is not. We may find an enlightened slave whose spirit is full of freedom. We also might find a free man whose spirit is that of a slave. The nature of freedom is the exalted spirit by which man or an entire people is uplifted so they can be faithful to their own inner selves to keep faith with that spiritual quality of the image of God which is within them. Through this quality, it is possible to feel one's life to be purposeful and of value. So one reason we give this invitation, which seems insincere, is to express the concept of what we do with our freedom. The other idea, which is a little deeper, is the word... Is, is, is the word Hebrew, the Hebrew word for freedom is cherut. And the difference between a free person and a slave is not just whether someone's in shackles, because the truth is someone could be very free and still be enslaved. What can they be enslaved? It says we might find an enlightened slave whose spirit is full of freedom. And you might find someone who's free, physically free, but who's enslaved to their own vices, to their own habits, I posted a um, um, a blog that I just wrote about um, vaping and smoking and the types of addictive bad habits that many of us have that will make it harder, God forbid, for someone who is afflicted with corona 1,400 times harder to fight corona, according to a Chinese medical study that came out in the Chinese Medical Journal. Not that I read that regularly, but I saw it quoted in the New York Post. And I wrote a whole blog, and I put it out there, and I want you to read it and share it with friends today. Because a lot of young people uh, vape and smoke. And um, I don't know if you realize, but 20% of the people that are hospitalized for corona are under the age of 45, are actually between the ages of 20 and 45. 20% are between the ages of 20 and 45. And I heard that it's actually higher than that. But there are different statistics on this. And a lot of those are because um, either pre-existing conditions or um, a really, really bad, unhealthy habit that makes it much more difficult to fight this thing. And a person could be free, free to do whatever you want, to go wherever you want, to do whatever you want in life but enslaved to some kind of bad habit. It doesn't have to be smoking. You know, I was talking to someone else this morning. Um, you know, we gotta be careful uh, not to get too addicted to watching too many shows, too much binge watching could drive you a little crazy, too much social media, too much online news with all of this negativity, right? None of this stuff is problematic on its own in moderation. Alcohol, Amy, is just posting, thank you, addiction, huge problem she's writing, especially alcohol. This is a really, really good time to try to knock some bad habits. And uh, I told you, I wrote in the blog there also that I had somebody come to see me on Shabbat. I couldn't let him into my apartment because we can't have people coming in, as everybody is aware. 
So I gave him a chair to sit in my hallway and we discussed it. He knocked his vaping addiction. And he was literally walking around Central Park on Shabbos. I didn't mention this in the article. You should read it though. Because uh, I talk about Judaism's emphasis on health. He was literally knocking his, he was literally stopping people on the street from six feet who were smoking or vaping and telling them in a very respectful way, you know what, I'm really trying to knock that habit right now. And I threw away all my vaping materials. Because if you get corona, it's going to make it really hard to recover from it. And you need all of your wits about you and you need your immune system strong. So, so important. So the, I'm bringing this up because Rav Cook here is speaking about the idea of being enslaved. And I, I, I mentioned this on my WhatsApp chat. I do a WhatsApp chat beyond the instant if anybody wants to get on as well. I'm doing a lot of teaching these days. I'm really enjoying it. And I put there also that, that um, the word Mitzrayim means, doesn't just refer to some place on the map, Egypt. And I've shared this here before. It means meitzar, means being constricted. It means being confined. And you don't have to be a slave or you know in jail to be enslaved. You can enslave yourself. And you can be in jail and still not be enslaved. That was the best scene in Shawshank Redemption. When he, I forgot the name of the actor, I forgot the main guy, Andy, Andy. I remember, um, what's his name? Always oh, told Morgan Friedman. Uh, talking about his good friend Andy. And Andy breaks into the warden's um, office or whatever it is where in the library that he can play classical music and he puts it on. He puts on this beautiful song for all the inmates and for those few moments they're all free. Because freedom is a state of mind. And the nature of freedom, he says, is, the, is that the exhausted spirit by which man or an entire people is uplifted so they can be faithful to their own inner selves. Are we being faithful to what we believe? Thank you, Jonathan Brody, 122. I'm finishing up. I appreciate that. And that's a really, really important idea. And if you look at the source sheet that I gave you, the Torah refers to the Ten Commandments as charut al-haluchot, engraved on stones, right? That God engraved the words on the two tablets. And the sages teach, don't read the word charut, 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 which means engraved, but read it charut, or f which means freedom. Because we believe that being a servant to God is a freeing experience. Simply being free and saying, we're free, do whatever you want, doesn't help you curb your own slavery that we subject ourselves to. The reason why the Torah and the mitzvot keep us free is because they give us restrictions. What? They give us restrictions. If you don't restrict yourself in some kind of way, you will not be a free person. You might be free politically, you might be free physically, you might not have any shackles on you, you might be able to walk wherever you wanna walk, you can vote for whoever you wanna vote, and that is the American concept of freedom, and God bless America that we have that. Because, right, the, 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 the founders of this great country were rebelling against the church of England and against the oppressive uh, English kings that were enslaving them. And they were enslaving them politically, they were enslaving them physically. But just because you're freed physically or politically doesn't mean now you're now free. You still have to deal with your inner Mitzrayim, your inner Egypt, the inner part of you that's constricting you, that's keeping you shackled to, your, to our hab bad habits, to our, our vices, to, to continuing to speak ill of other people, to all the things that we do that we know we shouldn't do and that, that keep us from being the best version of ourselves. That's what it means to be a servant of God. God took us out of Egypt. He redeemed us from being a slave to Pharaoh to ultimately becoming a servant to God because being a servant to God enables you to truly be free. Being free is not simply physical, it's also spiritual. And the only way to be spiritually free is to have a set of rules, which include restrictions to enable us not to succumb to any other kind of pressure within, to any kinds of devices. And that's why not only is the Hebrew word for Egypt, Mitzrayim, narrow, confined, what is keeping you confined in your life? What's enslaving you? And how can the Torah help free us to be our true selves? That's why when we talk about someone who becomes 
uh, religious and was perhaps not raised that way. They become a Baal Tshuva, which means a master of return. What are they returning to? They weren't raised religious. They didn't start out religious and left it, and now they're coming back because our true sense of who we are is a spirit of Hashem, of God. We are souls with bodies, not bodies with souls, I always say, and therefore our natural default state is a spiritual one, and therefore when we return to it, we are freeing ourselves to be who we were created to be, who we were designed to ultimately become. And that's why the Seder is so fundamental, Passover is so fundamental, and Judaism, all of the mitzvot, the 248 positive paths to God, the 365 things we refrain from, which can keep us from returning to our true selves. This is what it means to be a Jew, and that's what it means ultimately to be an Evan Hashem, to be a servant to God, because we are freeing ourselves to be who God created us ultimately to be. It is late, and I don't want to keep you guys any longer, uh, unless you want to just sit here and hang out. Um, Rabbi, thank you, Jonathan, and thank you all for participating. Uh, negative inner traits, Amy is saying, uh, uh, the negative inner narrative is a big addiction worthy of dropping through meditation. Meditation can be a very, very helpful instrument and tool. We know that prayer is a form of meditation also, and that could be used. And you know, I wrote it, this in my blog that if we can sort of wake up to some of the really unhealthy habits, whether they are physical ones or spiritual ones um, in our lives, then perhaps we can be redeemed from this corona. Uh, and we can use this time productively, not just sitting here and waiting this out, but actually working on things, which is really why I congratulate all of you for tuning in, for being with us, for sending hearts and likes and thumbs up. Thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that. It really helps energize me, and I hope I'm energizing you and enabling all of us to get, of our, get out of our personal Egypts and to just elevate ourselves. Uh, let's use the Passover that's coming up, even though we'll be a little lonelier, to being able to be more elevated. I wish you a wonderful, wonderful day. Remember, don't let the day go by without calling someone who needs your support and your love. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. Thank you for participating. And um, whatever it is you're eating for lunch, party appetite. Uh, it's a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.